Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Luke 9. It's the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, this is a, one of the only <clears throat> miracles of Jesus in all four, chap- all four uh, Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I've chosen uh, Luke chapter 9 and uh, to basically deal with a continuation of Mission Fest. Mission Fest was uh, two weeks ago, two weekends ago, and uh, uh, com- uh, our responsibility of the Great Commission. And uh, we're basically with the phrase, uh, you do something. So as we read uh, the Word of God and go through this, I'm not giving a Bible exposition today, but uh, you, you search your own hearts about our responsibility. We say in the Philippines, Mananampalatai, a true believer. A true believer is one who follows the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is Lord. And as our Lord, we would want to do whatever he would say. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say, What is what Jesus said. So let's look at Luke chapter 9 and go through this together, and I'll make a few comments. Luke chapter 9, verse 10 to 17. It says, when the apostles returned, they gave an account to him. Jesus had sent them out, and uh, they had returned, and he had... He sent them out to go from village to village, and they had returned, giving him an account of what had happened. And they gave an account to him and of all that they had done. And taking them with him, he withdrew by himself, by himself to a city called Bethsaida. But the crowds were aware of this and followed him, and welcoming them. Isn't that interesting? Usually we get so busy with uh, our family, our friends, our church, our responsibilities. We do not want to be interrupted by others. But here's Jesus basically taking the 12 disciples for a retreat outside in the countryside near Bethsaida. He, uh, he still, the crowds came, and not just a few people. This was, as we say in the film, roaming a whole bunch, 5,000 plus and, but Jesus welcomed them. It's a real lesson for us, isn't it? How do we welcome people? You know, one of the first things that uh, people recognize about Christians is that we're supposed to be kind to people, compassionate, caring, welcoming them. And it's not just to shake hand at a good welcome at church. That's important. Uh, but throughout our week and days, of always seeking to, to welcome people because we want them to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And welcoming them, verse 11, he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. Verse 12, <clears throat> now the day was ending and the twelve came to him and said, send the crowd away that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and get something to eat, for here we're in a desolate place. <laughs> the way to, to deal with issues is just, just close the door, uh, you know, walk away, send them away, uh, get rid of them, cross on the other side of the street, uh, shut the door, close the window, the Lord, you know, send them away. 
And they, 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 they phrase this, you know, because they need something to eat in lodging. Don't put the responsibility upon us. He just sent the crowd. He just sent them out to reach people. Now people had come to them and they said, send them away. Isn't that very interesting? Verse 13. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. You know, is, is, was Jesus sovereign? He's God, isn't he? Now, if he's God, uh, isn't it interesting that he knew they had nothing? <laughs> and even if they had something, how's he going to feed 5,000? How's he going to feed 5,000 people? But he said, you give them something to eat. You know, don't sit there and, and, and frown that I have no money. I have no talent. I have no background. I have no you know, ability to do this. You know, how can uh, I'm very insignificant. I'm a nobody. Uh, we're a small church, whatever it might be. But Jesus says, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. Now, these loaves were, I understand, James, were just like little barley loaves. Maybe the mother had fixed, you know, little, little, little rolls and so maybe some sardine type fish. And maybe the mother gave it to the boy. He put it in his pocket and he went with the crowd. He might have been with his mother. We don't know. Or his father. Uh, but this little boy, we read in John, had five loaves and two fish. We have no more than five loaves and two fish. Unless perhaps we go and buy food for all these people. Verse 14. For there were about 5,000 men and women. 5,000 men. With women and children, it might have been 20,000. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down to, to eat in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. I wonder how they did that. You know, 5 to 20,000 people. No, uh, no loudspeakers. No megaphones. Uh, and uh, I don't want to sit down. I mean, what, what are, you, who are you telling me what to do? I don't know what it was, but... It's an amazing picture of 20,000 people being put into groups of about 50 each. Men, women, and children. And have them sit down in about groups of 50 each. Verse 15, and they did so and had them all sit down. Then he, Christ, took the loaves, the five loaves, and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them. And broke them and kept giving them to the disciples to sell before the people. In other words, it seemed like the miracle of the five loaves and two fish, Jesus looked up to heaven, he blessed it, he broke it, he kept giving. In other words, the miracle kept happening, he kept breaking. I wonder what that looked like. See, but that's, see, that's God, he keeps giving. He doesn't give us once. He doesn't bless us once. He doesn't encourage us when he, he keeps giving. He kept giving. And kept giving them to the disciples to set before the people. Verse 17. And they all ate and were satisfied. Even the people in the back rows. Even the kids. Even the, the old. Even the, all the young. Even the women who were despised. You know, they all Eight, and were satisfied. 
And the broken pieces which they had left over were picked up. Twelve baskets full. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful passage of scripture of encouragement. Thank you, Father, that we serve a sovereign Lord who provides all of our needs. And at the same time, challenges and encourages and even commands us to you give them something to eat. There's a lost world. There's the, the masses of people who have yet to hear of Jesus Christ. And Father, you've asked us to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And as we share a few thoughts on missions today, we ask, Lord, that you would speak to all of our hearts, each one of us, whether we're young or old, whether we're educated or not, healthy or not. Lord, you've asked us to reach our generation, and this generation is the one we're living in today. So, Father, may we lift up our eyes, look on the fields of the world this morning that are, that are white, that are ready for harvest. And do a work in all of our hearts for the glory of God and for the good of Living Hope Bible Church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Several years ago, I was sitting in a small restaurant in Chicago early morning, and I was having breakfast, waiting for an appointment. And um, I was reading a report of uh, uh, one of our missionaries in Brazil of a little girl that had run away from her uh, uh, home and went to the streets of Sao Paulo and, and she wanted to join a gang and she was uh, picked up and abused all night and, and, and uh, one of the men had, uh, in the gang had poured a lot of fluid on her and torched her and so forth. And I'm reading this story, trying to have breakfast. And uh, I began to cry. I had tears in my eyes. With a waitress, she sees me crying. She's wondering what's wrong with the bacon and eggs. So she runs over and she says, sir, what's wrong? And I said, ma'am, I said, and, you know, she wasn't a believer. And, and I was trying to, I was embarrassed. I said, I, well, I'm just reading about street kids of Sao Paulo, Brazil. And she said, what do you mean street kids? And I tried to tell her about kids of the world. You know, 100 million kids living on the streets with no parents, 159 million orphans and so forth. I'm telling her this and, and uh, she's not understanding. She's not comprehending the, the need and. And finally, I said, uh, man, what if I told you that at that time, 35,000 children die every day from starva- starvation and malnutrition? She said, how many? And I said, 35,000. She said, that's terrible. Somebody should do something. Have you ever said that? You know, where's the mayor? Where's the president? You know, where's the government? Where, where's, the, where's the elders of the church? You got a problem. Somebody should do something. You remember in the summer of 1994, when one of the world's worst events in recent years happened in Rwanda. The Hutu began to slaughter the Tutsi tribe. Over 900,000, some say a million people, were slaughtered in two and a half months. Slaughtered, not necessarily with guns, machine guns, and, and poison gas and bombs, but they were hacked to death with machetes and garden hose. One million people. Well, the Tutsis begin to realize they were going to be exterminated, so they begin to fight back. And they, they, they pushed a million Hutus across the border into, into Zaire, the neighboring country. And we, you and I here in the States didn't follow this very much until 
when these, the Hutus, this a million people, fled into Zaire for safety to a little town called Goma. Goma is only 50,000 people. The governor of Zaire didn't know what to do, so they pushed the million people outside the city in, in like a refugee camp. And, uh, and that's when we began to pay attention because what happened in this refugee camp, it was in a hilly area, it was rainy season, and when you're outside a million people, excuse me, I know this is Sunday morning, uh, but when you're outside camping and you need to go to the toilet, where do you go? Just out in the open. So you had a, one million people relieving themselves out on the, o- on the mountainside. The rainy season, rain came, took all that human filth down into the lake where the people were getting their, their drinking water. And when you mix, mix human filth with water and drink it, that's where cholera comes from. And all of a sudden, cholera broke out in this camp of a million people and 50,000 people died within three days. 50, that's 700 people every hour in a camp outside of a small town in Zaire. That's when the newspapers and the TV and the radio begin to, begin to circulate here in the States. And I remember uh, my wife, I was going through cancer at the time, and my wife phoned me up and she said, Doug, I got this new barbecue set. Come home early today and, and uh, I'm going to have hamburgers and, uh, and I got you some Louisiana hot sauce. And, and I was so excited because... I could only eat one month, one week out of the month because of the cancer treatment, chemotherapy, and my uh, blisters in my mouth and so forth. And I was, I was going to eat. I was going to have a hamburger. And I got home. We had this hamburger. We were having a great time. And then we realized the news was on, 6 o'clock. And we wanted to see what was happening when, and, uh, in Goma. So I went over and turned on the TV. And there I, there I was standing. And my... Father-in-law, Walter Jesperson, who was in the 80s at that time, and Margaret. And the first thing we saw when the TV came on, here I am with a hamburger in my hand. Kind of embarrassing. And the little, the, the scene came on, we, we turned on the news and showed a little white Norwegian, blonde-headed uh, nurse going through bodies, just trying to find a live one that she could take care of. And then the scene changed. See, and scene change showed a, a, a black African, African male nurse coming out of a makeshift medical tent. He had a little baby in his hand, about maybe 10 months old. He had this little baby and a little boy in his hands and his arms, and he's walking down like this, and the camera's following him. This was an orphanage that I later worked in. An orphanage that had grown from 30 to 3,000 children in three days. Thirty kids to three thousand orphans in three days, and this male nurse was taking this little boy outside the medical tent, and he walked, and then the the camera panned back, and you saw about a hundred, maybe a hundred and fifty kids lying out, babies lying out, not being held like like uh, the ends holding their little Thomas Watson in our arms this morning, but putting the little baby out on the ground by itself. Some of the babies were moving, still alive, but many of them were dead. He put that little baby down. The nurse put the baby down, turned and walked back into the medical tent. And the commentator, the news commentator said, the putting the little baby out to die because there's nothing else they can do. Putting him out to die because there's nothing else to do. And here I'm standing there looking at this. 
my dear wife, Margaret, the most sensitive, caring, loving woman in the world, she looks at me, she looks at her father, and she said, what are we going to do about this? Now, can you imagine? Her husband dying of cancer. Her, her father, who's in, in his 80s, who's already given his life for Christ in China. What are we going to do about this? Remember the, the waitress in Chicago? That's what the world usually says. Somebody should do something. But what should we say? When we have response, when we see situations like this, when we see a world in need, what are we going to do about this? But we're, we're so often like the disciples, aren't we? What can we do in the midst of such a need? So we say as the disciples, Lord, Lord, send them away. So we turn off the TV news. We close the magazine story. We shut the windows of the cries of the world. We close the door on the need and, and walk on the other side. There's nothing we can do. We have so little, Lord. Send them away. We have nothing. But we do have something, don't we? The disciples did have something, didn't they? They had what? Five loaves and two fish. Plus the omnipotent God. So even with our little, the Lord Jesus says, you give. You give them something to eat. So do you think we can come up with five loaves and two fish this morning? Among the twelve disciples, that was only... Well, if you went down to Safeway, they have a sale on day-old bread. You can get a loaf of day-old bread for about a dollar. You can go over to the canned fish section and get a can of sardines with Louisiana hot sauce for uh, about a dollar. So five and ten and seven dollars. Seven dollars worth of whatever. whatever. Seven dollars worth. Do you think we can come up with seven dollars worth of bread and fish this morning? Among the 70 of us here this morning, what would that be? That would only be ten cents. Now, I'm not worth much, but I have 10 cents, and so do you. And we take, we take it, but it's not how much we have. The story, the significance of the story is that how little they have. We may not have much, not much money or education or intelligence or prestige or contacts or background or personality or physical appearance, but we do have our loaves and fish. We have salvation in Christ. We are children of the living God. We have the gifts of the Spirit. We have been blessed. We have nothing but what has been given us by God's gracious hand, which is all we need. Jesus takes our little, or he takes our much. He then blesses, he then breaks, and returns to us. And keeps returning to us. Keeps giving to us. To be used for his glory. Jesus was the producer. And the disciples were the distributors. Notice it was not how much they had. But how little. A insignificant little boy. With an insufficient lunch. And yet it fed a multitude. And that's what he wants to do with each one of us today. By the way, what happens when you keep bread and fish around for a long time? What happens to bread and fish when you keep it around for a while? It becomes what? Moldy and smelly. Maybe that's what's wrong with some of us. 
God has blessed us. And we've kept it to ourselves. And we've come moldy and smelly. We have the stench just like the world. Not, 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 not a physical smell, but a, but, but, <clears throat> but a sense of, of, uh, of shame. A shame that we have not used what God has given us to feed the multitudes of the world, especially with the gospel and compassionate care. In a few moments we have together this morning, I want to draw your attention to three groups of people that need your five loaves and two fish. And not your wife's, but yours. Not your husband's, but yours. Not your mom and dad's, but yours. Your five loaves and two fish. And just for the sake of alliteration, we'll call the first group the neglected. Uh, the second group, the, the, the nobodies. And the third group, the needy, especially children. Number one, the first group that needs your five loaves and two fish of the gospel are the neglected. The neglected. Colossians 1.28 says, And we proclaim him, Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. How many? Every man. Every man, woman, boy, and girl, and yet we as a church have neglected so many, haven't we? Our text says they all ate and were satisfied. Nobody was left out. But today, three billion people have yet to hear the name of Jesus, have yet to hear that they can be saved and go to heaven through Christ Jesus, who died on the cross for their sins. Three billion people. Now, who are the people we neglect today? Let's be very practical. People we neglect around us as well as beyond us. What about around us? What about elderly people? We've neglected elderly, haven't we? So much so that in Chicago several years ago, during the heat wave in July, 500 people died. In Chicago, the United States of America, in the heat wave, they were all elderly. They were neglected. So much so that in 2003, just 10 years ago, in France, a modern country, during that summer heat wave in August... 12,000 people died in the heat wave. All elderly. They were neglected. No one was taking care of them. Now I can see we have misconceptions about elderly people. We're setting our ways. We act kind of strange. We're hard to get along with. And we, we, we dress funny. Our clothes don't match. They're too sloppy. They're too tight, too baggy, and the colors don't match. And so what happens, those that of us may be younger are embarrassed to be around elderly people. So what? We just pass on the other side. And we don't minister to them and bless them and care for them. Now, those of us who are elderly, who do we neglect? Who do we neglect? We neglect teenagers, don't we? Teenagers are neglected. Now I can see why. There's some misconceptions we have about teenagers, but they're set in their ways. They act kind of strange. They're hard to get along with. And they dress funny. <laughs> Clothes are too sloppy. They're, they're too tight or too baggy. And, and the, the colors don't match. So those of us who are older, because we can't, we're, it's hard to be around Teenagers, what do we do? We pass on the other side or we neglect them. We have nothing to do with them. We won't even say hello. We neglect them. And teenagers today, many of them have no parents, no adults in their lives at all. 
So we neglect them. <clears throat> One day, when I was going through my chemotherapy, uh, <clears throat> with, because of the colon cancer, I was at my office in Bothell. And all of a sudden, my eyes began to, to really water. Uh, tears were just coming down. You know, I could tell I was having some reaction to the chemo. And they were almost swelling shut, and I, I could hardly see. And I phoned Margaret. And I said, Margaret, I'm coming home right away. We lived about five miles away, so I ran out and jumped in the car. And I'm driving down Bothell Avenue, Bothell Way, and, and, uh, and I passed Dunkin' Donuts. And Dunkin' Donuts had a big sign out. I never stopped at Dunkin' Donuts. They had a big sign out near the road. It said, uh, special today, one pound of freshly ground coffee, half price. Well, I'm a missionary. I cannot pass up a deal. You know. And my car just pull, automatically just pulled right in. Now, I was kind of embarrassed. You know, here I am dying of cancer, and I'm going to sell, save $2 on a pound of coffee. And uh, so I parked, and I, I, walked, I walked in the door. Do you believe God is sovereign? Do believe God is sovereign? I walked in the door, and just as I walked in, there was a teenager, maybe about 16, between the door and the, the counter, he was standing in the middle, and he was yelling at this little Asian waitress behind the counter. And he was really upset. And he was calling her these filthy names. Now, I'm used to gutter language on the street, but not in Dunkin' Donuts. And I've worked with Asians all of our life, and I, was, and I got mad at him because he was this little, little waitress. She might have been Chinese or Vietnamese or Cambodian or whatever. Probably Cambodian because they run all the, tea, uh, the donut shops. And, uh, and, and I, I became very angry. So I walked up to this big kid, over six foot tall, put my hand back to slap him in the face. And then I could just see Seattle Times headlines the next day. <laughs> Teenager beats up old missionary Dunkin' Donuts. And so instead of hitting him, I just kind of tapped him on the shoulder. And he turned around and said, what do you want? I said, ooh. You know, I didn't know what to say. What are you saying in a situation like that? So I said, uh, did you know your hat's on backwards? <laughs> do, do, do you wear your hat on backwards? So he grabs his hat and puts it around like he's supposed to be. Then he realized what he'd done, so he put it back. He said, this is the way we wear them. So I stood back and I looked at him. He said, what are you looking at? I said, I'm just seeing if you wear your pants on backwards too. He said, who are you? Man, I said, it doesn't matter who I am. I know how to wear my clothes. <laughs> and so he smiled, and when we began to talk. We began to talk. And I was so sick and ill. And it might have been from the stench of this kid. He hadn't bathed for weeks. He'd been found out he'd been kicked out of his, his home. He'd moved in with his sister. She got a new boyfriend. They kicked him out. He'd walk in the alleys and streets of Seattle Hadn't eaten, you know, each scraps here, scraps there. He walked by Dunkin' Donuts just as they were making fresh donuts. And that bread smell came out and made him so. He walks in to beg a donut and they said no. And he exploded just as this old missionary walked in the door. And as we talked and I just ministered to him the grace of Christ and the gospel. I had to, to keep standing. I had to put both my hands on his shoulders. And as we talked, he said, sir, you're very ill. You look like you're about ready to faint. Sir, let me help you. And this rude, crude teenager 
takes me by the arm, takes me out to my car. I never got my coffee. <laughs> takes me out to the car, puts me in the car, puts my seatbelt on. And as I drove away, he said, thanks, mister, for talking to me. Thanks for talking to me. And it may not be just as dramatic as that, but the same thing could happen to you all the time. Who are the other people we neglect? We neglect people of other races and colors. You know, they're not the same nationality that I am. You know, they treated my country bad in the old days. I, I was, I, I, they, they, they're thieves. You know, they're illegals. Whatever it might be. People of other races and colors. What about the Hindus that we neglect? 90% of the villages of, uh, in, in India have no gospel witness. Over 1 billion Hindu, uh, Indians today. Most of them have never heard the gospel of Christ. According to the Bible societies, about 2,000 of the world's 6,900 languages have no scripture. Now, show how things have changed. When I was in school, 40, 50 years ago, I heard a missionary say, we only had 1,000 languages to go. They don't say that anymore. In spite of the progress of translating manuscript, we still have 2,000 to go. What about the Muslims? You know, the Muslims, we don't 1.1 billion Muslims. And we're, we're afraid of them. They're violent. Uh, they carry knives. They kill people. They're terrorists. Isn't the gospel for wicked people? Isn't it? Isn't it? They need the gospel, but we neglect them. 6,000 men and women in Africa die every day of AIDS. 6,000. 6,000 yesterday, 6,000 today, 6,000 tomorrow. It's like a slow-moving slow tsunami across Africa. 42,000 people die every week in Africa because of AIDS. About, what about the unreached people groups of the world? About 6,900 distinct ethnic groups. Unreached people with no church. We have been blinded to these people. And we have neglected them. But out of, because of out of sight, out of mind. But now, we are, we are blind no more. Because God is bringing the hidden, unreached people groups to us. We call these the diaspora, the scattered people, people on the move. There are today 232 million immigrants, migrants, refugees. Did you hear that figure? 232 million. God is taking the unreached peoples of the world and shifting them from everywhere to everywhere All for the purpose that they might know him through the gospel. Through the gospel. Yes, every 10 seconds, 26 people die. Two Buddhists, four Hindus, six Muslims, four Roman Catholics, three Protestants, and seven atheists. And all, most of them go to a crisis eternity because we've we've neglected to share the gospel with them. Yes, the neglected. Number two, the nobodies. The nobodies need our five loaves and two fish of the gospel. Now, these nobodies are basically the poor. Proverbs 31, 8 and 9 says, Speak up for those who cannot speak up for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. We have allowed Christian leaders to teach 
All souls are precious, but not all are strategic. You know, this is almost blasphemous to say that. You know, the students and the country club crowd and the politician and the sports stars and the lawyers and the doctors and the educated, they need the gospel, but not at the expense of neglecting the masses of the world who are poor. Many sins are the direct results of poverty and oppression. There are thousands of young prostitutes worldwide between the ages of 12 and 16. Most sold into prostitution because of poverty. 800,000 boys, women, and girls are trafficked across borders yearly worldwide. In my city, Manila, there's 50,000 prostitutes. They say, the government said between 9 and 15,000 are little boys and girls between the ages of 9 and 12. Years ago, when one of our workers said we should do something about these women working in this one area, Manila. It's this mile square area downtown Manila. And it's called Armita. And maybe we should go down and do something. And I said, well, how do you do that? And, and I, was supposed to be the, I was supposed to be the director. And, and, uh, and I, I'd never even talked to one. And how are we going to do this? And, and uh, <clears throat> so we, got, we asked for volunteers among our staff. We had about 170 on the staff, Filipinos and and we said, volunteers, we're going to go down one night. And we decided to, we prayed about what to do. We decided to go down at night and work between uh, eight, at, 8 at night and 4 in the morning. We're just going to walk up and down the streets where all the bars were and share the gospel with the women on the streets. And we had all planned out. We had like two, two men, excuse me, two women and one man on each team. The, the women would be the ones that would talk to the, to the girls. And the man would be the kasama, the guard. And, uh, and we had name tags, big name tags, you know, because if people saw us, we wanted them to know what we were down there for. I had a big name, you know, Doug Nichols, Christian worker. In fact, mine was up this big. I hid behind it. And um, we were down there getting ready to, to, when we got down there in Ermita, we were, the 40 of us gathered, and we were praying uh, and uh, encouraging ourselves in the Lord because all of us were very frightened. We had never done this before. We didn't know what to do. Uh, we didn't know how, what the response was. We didn't know what some of us would get beat up by pimps and so forth. We, we didn't know what. The, so we're praying. And one of our workers said, Mr. Nichols, uh, Linda looks like she's about ready to faint. Linda was a short-term worker who had just arrived that week from Kansas City. She's quite large, big lady, school teacher. And uh, she could play for the Kansas City Chiefs, and they would guarantee the Super Bowl this year. She was big, and, and, uh, and they said, you know, she looks like she's about ready to faint and, uh, and, uh, because she wanted to be with us that night. And so I, I walked over to her and didn't know what to do, and I simply said, Linda, look, while we're getting ready, we taught you how to use this, this uh, Bridge Illustrated booklet. We taught you how to use this, and while we're getting ready and dividing up in the teams, and I pointed at a little girl, maybe 15, maybe 16, maybe only 14, Little girl, prostitutes, and I was standing over looking at us. Go over and talk to her. And I just kind of pushed her like that. Well, Linda, you know, walked over to her and had this little this bridge illustrated track. And, and you know how you do something the first time you go overboard? You're nervous and you kind of go overboard. Well, that's what Linda did. She towered over this little Filipina. And she said, listen to this. Well, this little girl looked up at this Amazon woman and said, sure, yeah, yes. 
And so she started sharing the gospel. She said, this is a heaven, this is hell, and this is where you're going. And where did you get that dress? And do you, how, you know what you look like? And does your mom and dad know you're out here? And what's wrong with you? And don't you know any better? And just She's sharing the gospel supposedly condemning, judgmental, insensitive, non-caring. And uh, she's going through the booklet like this. And then she glances down while she's sharing supposedly the gospel. And she glances down at this little girl and tears are going down her face. And all of a sudden, Linda stops. And she says, oh, I'm sorry. Have I offended you? And the little girl looked at Linda and said, no, you haven't offended me. I just never knew anybody cared. I never knew anybody cared. See, I don't really understand that. Judgmental, condemning, you know, insensitive, non-caring, no compassion, you know, Yelling at this little girl. And yet, that's not what the little girl saw. Why would this woman even talk to me? I'm a nobody. I was sold into prostitution by my parents. The only people that ever touch my body are people that want something from me. Nobody cares about me. No, you haven't offended me. I just never knew anybody cared. Linda stops and she says, Would you mind if I started over? And with compassion and love, she shared the gospel with this little girl. Little girl ended up praying, turned from sin, repented of her sins, trusted Christ as Savior. When they finished praying, she said to Linda, Would it be okay if I go get a friend of mine and you tell her what you told me? Oh, yes. She takes off. She brings another little girl over to her. She said, Miss Linda, you tell her what you told me and I'll help you because you didn't do a very good job. <laughs> but the neglected, the nobodies, and number three, the needy. Our text says they all ate and were satisfied, even the children. The helpless and needy are especially children, over half of the population of the world. There are 100 million street children, 159 million orphans throughout the world. James 1.27 says, Pure religion in the sight of God is to visit, to care for orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep yourself unspotted from the world. Notice that first phrase. To care pure religion. Undefiled religion. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God our Father is to care for orphans. In the light of this clear teaching of God's word. Each church should have as one of its major components of ministry. The care of orphans. Did you see the YouTube of the Bennett Chapel Missionary Baptist Church in Possum Trot, Texas. Did you see that, YouTube? It's a church of a hundred blacks, African American, in this little out of the way place in Texas that has adopted 70 children from the foster care. Did you hear that? 70. You know, I was thinking, I was thinking, if, if every, if Living Hope did that, and if all the other, if we get other evangelical churches to do that, we would need 2,200,000 more churches simply to reach the 159 million orphans in the world today. And we have the audacity to say the day of sending missionaries and reaching out to the lost is over when there's such need. 
true religion is caring for orphans. There are 13 million orphans in Africa as a result of AIDS. Wouldn't it be something? You know, a chief said to us one time in Zambia, I have a thousand acres near this river. You can have it if you fill it with children. You can have it if you fill it with children. You know, Zambia has a million orphans out in the forest, little kids, no parents, no, no, no parents at all. You know, what do orphans and street children do about it? Have you ever thought of that? You know, in Manila, where our, my, my city, 75,000 kids live on the streets of Metro Manila. 1.5 million uh, street kids throughout the, throughout the country. You know, have you ever th- th- thought about the life of a street child? You know, I, I had the flu one time in the summertime. I had the flu, and, and uh, I was lying in bed. I had a bed, soft bed, clean sheets, windows out next to me, fresh air coming through, the toilet, the bathroom not too far away, had fresh drinking water, clean water to wash with. My wife took care of me. She brought me chicken noodle soup. You know, that would cure anything. And, and took care of me. What does a street child do when they're sick? They sleep on the street. They have no mother. They have no father. The only other friends they have are the people that abuse them. They don't know really what's wrong with them. Here's a four-year-old boy, five-year-old girl, six-year-old little boy. Well, what, what do they do? What do they know? How, how do they take care of themselves? Sleep on a hard, dirty ground. Have no soup to eat. No fresh water, no drinking water, the bodies deteriorating, filled with sickness, and no one to care for them. What do they do? Over 27 million slaves in the world today, most are children. There are up to 400,000 children in slavery in the country of Haiti, just south of the United States. Overwhelming needs? I know this is overwhelming. It's terrible to hear all these statistics and so forth. Overwhelming needs. What can you and I possibly do? Someone said, don't let the immensity of the task deter you, but let it drive you to do something about it for the glory of God. Isn't that great? That was Spurgeon who said that. Don't let the immensity of the task deter you, but let it drive you to do something about it for the glory of God. <clears throat> Jesus said in Matthew nineteen fourteen, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. Although none of you would purposely hinder an orphan from coming to Christ, you would do nothing to hinder a street street child to know Christ. Conversely, what are you doing to make it easy for them to come to the Savior? What are you doing to make it easy? What are you doing with your time, your money, your prayer? What are you doing to make it easy for children to come to know Jesus Christ as Savior? There are many ways to reach out to the masses of needed children of the world with the gospel and compassionate care. The feeding programs and sponsorships and sports outreach and medical and dental work and street work and church-based schools and daycare and children's literature and research and development and discipleship and vocational training and, and jail ministry. Jail ministry. I walked into, I saw a cell, I was in a prison one time, and I was going from cell to cell, little, you know, 10 by 10 little cubicles, you know, with bars. And, and I looked in, and all these men, and little kids, little kids. And I knew what was happening to the little kids at night, by these hardened criminals. And jails are full of them like that all over the world. Clothing ministry, and especially adoption. Have you considered adoption? 
Why not? God adopted you into his family. And you say, oh, we'll have problems. Of course you will have problems. That's why the best homes to adopt children are Christian families. Because in the fellowship of God's people, to help raise those children to love Jesus and to know him. Can you imagine the psychological problems many of these foster children are going through? I hired a CPA to, to help us with finalizing dad's papers and so forth, legal papers. And we were dealing with some of the issues and, and he looked very tired. This just happened. And he's a man in his early 60s. And I said, sir, you look very tired. And he said, yeah, my wife and I are really tired. He said, two years ago, we became foster parents. We became, uh, we became emergency foster parents of children from birth to three months of age. And they can call us at any time of the night and bring a baby to us. And as he was telling me about it, I said, how many children have you had in these, these two years you've been doing this? He said, 28. I said, 28 children. And I said, sir, isn't that hard when you have a little baby in your arms and you have the baby for two months, three months, and then you have to let it go? You can imagine what it does to the child. But he said, but I want to give that child at least one opportunity in his life to be loved and cared for. Christian families are the best ones to do this. You know, the little boy had five loaves and two fish. What could he have done with it? He could have thrown it away. That would have been wasteful. Don't, don't, don't waste what God's given to you. He could have been careless. You know, don't, don't flippantly go through life. God put you here for a purpose. The little boy could have eaten it all himself. You know, so many of us have kept our blessing to ourselves, not shared it with others. He could, have, he could have just shared it with his family and friends. You know, I need to take care of my family first. He could have not used it at all, neglected. You know, so I have this five loaves and two fish, but big deal. He could have just uh, given part of it, half-hearted. Or he could have just taken the attitude, you know, I'll do it myself. I'll do it myself. Let me close. On one occasion, I was visiting one of our Missionaries in Alangapo, Philippines. Alangapo, Philippines is called, uh, that's where our two kids, have, we adopted them from Alangapo. It was called Sin City because the U.S. Navy base was there and it was just filled with thousands of women on the street. So I was visiting our missionary who, who works with street kids. And his name was Ron Hominuk. He used to be a professional hockey player. In fact, he played for Seattle one time. And uh, he serves with us in in Philippines now. And uh, I was going with Ron to a banquet one night of an orphanage uh, having their anniversary banquet. And I was the main speaker. And I had a very nice baron Tagalog. It's a white embroidered long sleeve fancy shirt that you wear on special occasions. All dressed up and I'm sitting in the van. We're driving to the the, uh, celebration. And we passed the, uh, the juvenile prison. It's a big two-story building and walls all around it. And Ron pulls over and says, oh, oh, Doug. He said, could we stop here for a few minutes? I'd like you to meet the warden. 
and, the, and the, the, some of the guards here, I'm trying to make friends with them because uh, uh, they're giving us permission to take a hundred kids. They gave us permission to take a hundred of the older kids out for, for prison for one week at camp, which is unheard of. And I want to keep building a relationship with him. He says, could you stop here just for a few minutes? I'd like to introduce you to the warden, and then we'll leave. And uh, I didn't want to do that. But for protocol and for him, I said, okay, we'll do it. So we stopped the van, got out. As we walked towards the main gate of the prison for these children, the kids saw Ron Hominuk, and they love him. They love him. And we walked through the gate. Uh, the guards opened the gate and we walked through. All the little kids climbed all over on. They loved him so much. And because I was with him, they thought I was, must be okay also because they, they climbed all over me. And, uh, and I don't like these kids all over me. It's grief. And they had one kid on this leg and one kid on this leg. And I'm walking around like this, shaking hands with the warden and guards and everything, officers of the prison, trying to be dignified. And the kids all over me. And, and we're just there for 10, 15 minutes. We're not there to talk to the kids. We're there just to make an official protocol, visit to the wardens and the guards and leave. But as we walked from room to room, I noticed a little boy on my right. I've never seen a boy like that in my life, anywhere in the world. He was so, he was so ugly. He was so filthy. He was so diseased. You know, his teeth were all black, matted hair with bugs in it, and sores all over his body. And they only had a pair of brief underwear that were supposed to be white, but they were all black. All the other kids had uniforms. So he must have been a, he must have been a new ward, a new prisoner from the street kid. And uh, he was so, teeth were almost gone and nose crooked. You could tell he'd been abused and beaten and sores all over. It, it was terrible. But as we walked from room to room, there he was. He was looking at us. He didn't know who we were. I just reached over and touched him on the shoulder like I do with kids. You know? And as I touched him on the shoulder, he jerked away. The reason he jerked away is because the only people that ever touched him, adults that ever touched him, were somebody to abuse him, to rape him, to burn him, to kick him, to burn whatever. And so he jerked away. We walked to another room and I'd shake a hand for some money. And there he was again and... I put my hand out and touched his shoulder again, but this time he was stiff, but he didn't jerk away. We went to another room and put my hand over on his shoulder again. This time he was soft. He was soft. He could tell he enjoyed the touch. Because it probably the only time he had ever had a clean touch. Touch of a father or a grandfather. Someone that touched him with compassion and love. Someone that wasn't abusive. But loved him. Being soft. Pretty soon as I walked from the next room, he came over next to me. I put, put that dirty arm around my, my, my waist, so much for a clean shirt. Put it around and I put my arm around him and he put his arm around me and we just walked from room to room together. And we walked to the tank, came time to leave and came to the main uh, gate and Ron walked out the gate, and I came to the gate, and I'm taking all these kids off of me, kicking this one off and this one off. I gave this little boy a one last hug. Walked out to the gate, the gate closed, and I turned around and said, waved goodbye, and there he was, there about five feet back from the gate, waving, probably waving at the only man who'd ever treated him with love, 
compassion. God brought him into his life, and now I was leaving. And waving goodbye, longingly waving. So I walked over to the gate, put my hand through these bars. He sees his hand coming towards him. He runs up to the gate. He grabs my arm, my hand, pulls it to his little emaciated, filthy, potted chest and squeezes it with all of his mind. Squeezes. Finally, after such a long time, I pried my hand loose. He did not want to let it go. Pried my hand loose and waved goodbye, walked down to the van, got in the van, and as the door shut, I just broke down and wept. I just wept before God. So, oh God, would you save that little boy? Would you send other people to that prison? Would you bless Ron's work and say, God, would you bring that little boy to faith in Christ? And Lord, help him. Please save him. And then I said this, God, I'm so ashamed. I don't even know his name. I never ask him his name. God, I don't know his name, but you, you know his name. <laughs> you know his name. Would you save him for Christ's sake? You know, I never did find out his name, but you could. You could find out his name. Maybe you wouldn't find out that particular little boy's name, but you could work in a prison like that, street of Longapo, Mexico City, with his 240,000 kids on the street, some of those 13 million orphans in Africa of age just his last several years. Though you may not know all their names, you could certainly tell them the name of Jesus who died on the cross for their sins, and love them with a compassionate care, and bring them to a place that they could understand and comprehend the truth of the gospel. Why not? Why not? The neglected, the nobodies, and the needy need your five loaves and two fish of the gospel. Let us pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, Father, for... Thank you for this boy who willingly gave this his lunch to Jesus. Something so insignificant and insufficient fed a multitude. And Lord, would you speak to some of us today that we, not just through some moving story, but because of our love for you and because of the great need, and you said yourself, the world is white unto harvest. Father, pray ye the Lord of the harvest to send forth workers into the great harvest field. Father, would you do that today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.